So this week I got a really funny phone call. If, if you call Restoration's phone number, uh, it actually redirects to my cell phone. Uh, and it doesn't really ring that often. People don't call churches that often, I guess. I don't know. But it, it hardly ever happens. So usually when I see this call coming in, I think it's either a telemarketer or something, and I just answer the phone, hello. Uh, well, this time, the, the woman asked this question. She says, um, so what, what kind of restoration services do you offer? And, uh, and I started to laugh. I was like, well, so we're at church. And, and I kid you not, she goes, oh, this is like the third church I've called. And then she hung up the phone immediately. <laughs> I thought that was great. That doesn't have a whole lot to do with my sermon, but I was like, I need to share this with the church. This is, this is a great story. Um, it, I will co- bring it back up a little bit later, but yeah. So this is a special day in the church calendar. Uh, today, the fourth Sunday of Easter is usually referred to as Good Shepherd Sunday. Good Shepherd Sunday. And at first that might seem a little unusual or interesting, but I think it's actually really fitting for this Easter season. For this Easter season. You see, Jesus is the lamb who was slain, but he is also that good shepherd of his people. And so today we're going to be looking at John chapter 10. And this is one of those beautiful, I am the good shepherd, or this is the good, uh, this is the beautiful, I am the good shepherd passage. And I'm going to walk us through each of these three sections of this, this passage. And I want us to pay attention to the voice of the good shepherd and what he is calling us as individuals, but also us as a church into. And I think what we're going to see is that listening to the voice of the good shepherd was actually really hard in the first century. And it's probably even harder today. So I'm going to invite us to listen in on this. So as many of you know, our, our Sunday readings, it's, we have a Sunday lectionary that we follow here in this tradition, and uh, these passages kind of rotate through every three years or so. Uh, so on this Sunday, the gospel passage is usually taken from John chapter 10, and this is a familiar passage to us. This is when we hear things where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I and the Father are one, he says. But then we have today's passage, which, you know, as you can obviously see, is a part of John chapter 10. But it's, it's an unusual passage in that it, it begins in the middle of this chapter, but it almost feels like an interruption with the way that John kicks it off here, the way that he announces this. Because this story, the, the way that this begins there in verse 22, is with a statement of when and where which is kind of weird because the conversation has already been going on throughout the chapter. So it's odd that here at this moment, John gives us a when and a where. My point is this. These aren't throwaway statements. John is very particular. He wants you to know when and where this next, uh, these next sayings, this next dialogue happened. So two things I want to point out to you in the when and the where. The first, the when. Uh, John tells us that the time at this moment is the Feast of Dedication. Now, if you flip back through the Old Testament and you're going through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you're not going to see any prescription for the Feast of Dedication. Instead, this is a feast that comes in between the time of the New Testament and the Old Testament being written. It comes from a time in which Israel was under foreign rule, specifically in 167 BC. This is when Antiochus, a foreign ruler, came into Israel came into Jerusalem, and he took over the place, and he desecrated the temple altar. 
He did so by, by, by uh, dedicating it to Zeus, and he sacrificed those unclean animals. He sacrificed pigs on the altar. And Jews refer to this as a great abomination. I mean, this was a horrific event that happened. Within a couple of years later, Judas Maccabees, which I, I love his name, Don and Linda, you'll like his name. Judas Maccabees means Judas the Hammer. I was like, perfect. <laughs> That's great. So Judas the Hammer, he led this successful revolt against Antiochus. And what he did is it was successful. He got them out of there, and he, he removed that old um, altar, the one that had, been, that had the abomination on it, and he rebuilt a new altar stone by stone. And this actually kicked off a hundred-year rule called the Maccabean dynasty. And the Jews still celebrate this feast today. In fact, the word dedication in Hebrew is Hanukkah. So this obviously is, is a feast that the Jews still celebrate today. So this is the when. So what about the where? Well, we're told that, that Jesus is speaking here with the Jews in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, it was thought that this portion of the temple was actually a part of the original temple first built by Solomon many, many, many years ago. And so this portion of the temple was a constant reminder of Solomon's wisdom, the wealth that he had amassed, the international fame and the influence that he had. So I think what you're seeing here is the significance of this when and the where is actually pretty clear, right? Like this is a political, in the first century sense, this is a political text. Jesus is speaking of, when Jesus speaks of being the good shepherd in John chapter 10, He's reminding the people of that great shepherd king, King David. And when they stand here in this place and listen to Jesus' wisdom being exposited, they think of the wisdom of King Solomon and the greatness that he was for their people. And here at this moment now, at the Feast of Dedication, Jesus is reminding the people of that great liberator king, Judas. And so you, can't, you, you can understand why the Jews would be asking the questions that they are. They can't help but wonder aloud, Jesus, when is it your turn? When is it your turn to lead this great revolt? When are you going to usher us into a new dynasty? Jesus, stop playing games. Tell us right now, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? We can't handle this charade any longer. You see, the Jews want the restoration of not just a dynasty. The Jews want the restoration of a mighty temple empire, one that is full of power, one that is full of purity, one that is full of prestige, that again, isn't lasting just 100 years, but goes forever and ever. So friends, when you come to a church called Restoration, what is it that you want restored? You know, are you, are you like that caller who's calling me up and saying, so what exactly, what kind of restoration services are you offering here? You know, are you looking for the restoration of a temple or of, a, of an empire of yesteryear? Are you wanting the restoration of an old institution? Uh, earlier this week, I was listening to a podcast, and I, I can't remember the name of this. They told the story of an English author who came here to America, and it's killing me that I can't remember his name. But this author, this English author, happened to be an atheist, and he moved to New York in the 50s or so, so from England to New York. And he goes to the bank to try to get a loan so that he could buy a house, right, which is what one would probably want to do then. And one of the first questions that the banker asks him is, okay, so where do you go to church? And the author replies back, what in the world does that have to do with, with me wanting to buy a house? 
And the banker responds, well, how can I trust you if you don't attend a church? Which in the 50s and 60s, like, that's a pretty typical statement, right? How can I trust you if you don't attend a church? Well, these days, it's not necessarily uncommon to hear people talk about those, those days as being the golden days here in America of the church. You know, we think that maybe it was good that it was culturally expected for people to attend church. And there were certainly some good things about this era. There were tremendous missions of movement that happened. There were amazing, um, powerful revivals that that came to be. In fact, some of you here in this room may have come to faith during that time uh, through one of those movements. But it's also easy to forget that in some parts of the church, it was Christians who were often engaged here in this country in horrible acts of violence against African-American brothers and sisters. I went to school, I went to seminary in Alabama, uh, not too far away from the 16th Street Baptist Church, where there was those horrible bombings that happened in 63, killing four little girls. And it was always a reminder as we would drive by of the parts of the church that had been horribly violent during this apparent golden age that sometimes people talk about. And so I want to be really clear to you all Uh, to myself, that when we speak of restoration here, we're not talking about the resuscitation of an old institution. That's not the kind of restoration that we want here. We don't need vestiges of temporary power restored back into place. We don't need the appearance of purity to be brought back or societal privilege to be brought back. That's not what it means to be the church. And I think the Jews, when they were asking Jesus, are you the Messiah? It's this empire building that they had in mind, wasn't it? They wanted to see those powers and those privileges brought back into place. But Jesus is our good shepherd, and he's not interested in building empires. And Jesus does what Jesus does. He takes their question, and he totally reframes the entire conversation. And so let's look at that second paragraph there. You'll see what Jesus says here. He says, first of all, I've told you clearly, and we could actually flip back through the pages of John and see moments when Jesus is pretty clear about his identity and his relationship with the Father. So he says, I already told you. The second paragraph, Jesus says, look at the works, look at the things that I'm doing here, he tells the Jews. And no one in Jerusalem could deny what it is that Jesus has been doing throughout the country. You'd have to be pretty ignorant. You'd have to be hiding under a rock to to miss these things. In John chapter 5, Jesus had healed a man who had been paralyzed. In John chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. In John chapter 9, he heals a man who had been born blind. In fact, that's what immediately happens before this passage. And so what Jesus is saying is like, look, the answer is right in front of you. You want to see the Messiah? You want to see what his kingdom looks like? Open your eyes. Look around. So this is, this is probably a sermon full of podcast uh, references. So here's a, another one. I was listening to a podcast with Dr. John Lennox. Uh, he's this well-known professor of mathematics and philosophy at Oxford University. Uh, he's just a brilliant, brilliant, very gentle man. And he was debating this renowned atheist whose name is Peter Atkins. And, it, and I love to listen to these kinds of shows. I know many people hate listening to apologetics. That's totally fine. Um, I, I tend to geek out over this a little bit. But as you listen to these kinds of arguments for Christianity, arguments for the faith, they, they do tend to kind of sound the same after a while. And you could even tell in this particular debate that Lennox himself was getting a little kind of agitated at, at kind of the, the circling that, can, that kept happening, kind of the stalling that was going on. 
And at one point, Lennox just kind of breaks script and he goes, you know, these apologetic arguments, these, these can be helpful at times. You know, these can bolster our faith at times. And I personally can, can speak to that. He says, but the real testimony for me are the countless lives that I've seen transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's a much older gentleman, and he, and he went through several people in his life whose, whose very lives have been transformed. And I love that. You know, following Jesus doesn't mean that all of your problems go away. It doesn't mean that you don't wrestle with doubt anymore or anything like that. No, what it means is that by walking with the great shepherd, that he gives his people gifts of peace, gifts of grace, gifts of hope that actually transforms our lives. And sometimes he even gives us the occasional miracle that we get to celebrate. And these are awesome, amazing things. You want to know who God's Savior is? Then look around. Look around. In fact, after the service, if you're new here, or even if you've been here for a while, just ask people, like, how did God bring you here? What's God doing in your life? And I get the privilege of hearing that from many of you over coffee or meals and things like that. And I just get so excited, like, hearing these stories, and I want you to share them with each other as well. You want to know Messiah? You want to know God in the flesh? Then let's talk about it. Ask one another, how have you encountered Jesus lately? So this next part, this next section, Jesus really turns the dial up quite a bit more. He takes this conversation to a whole new level. He hones in on what it means to be a member of his kingdom, or to put it in the language of this particular passage, to be a member of his flock. So Molly and I love to go on walks. Uh, not as much when it's cold, when it's, when it's warm, absolutely, but we love to go on walks. You know, and this isn't a time when we're wearing headphones. This isn't a time where we're looking at our screens. This is a time in which we're going from here to there. It's a time in which we step over barriers that come our way. It's a time in which if we encounter a major obstacle, we reroute the path and we go somewhere else. We stop to smell flowers. We talk to neighbors or we watch a bird. We hold hands especially when it's slippery out. And sometimes we hold hands just because that's, that's what we like to do, right? So friends, followers of Jesus go on walks with him. We put away distractions. We admire the beauty that he sets upon our path. We talk to neighbors with him. We navigate both the easy and the difficult routes. And we hold his hand. You see, following Jesus, it's, it's not really, I mean, it is a mental exercise. There's certainly um, intellectual truths that we can plumb forever and ever, but we will plumb forever and ever. But it's also more than that. It's not, the faith is also not just an emotional high that we're trying to fabricate week after week, although I hope that we have emotional experiences, certainly. But following Jesus is an ordinary, daily walking with him, day in and day out. And now this is where it gets really, really cool. Our relationship with Jesus Christ, it's not, it's not a solitary endeavor. In fact, what Jesus tells us is that our relationship with him is rooted in the internal love of God himself. It's rooted in the internal love of God himself. Now, I realize that's a weird thing to say, in fact, if a friend comes up to you this week and says, so what does it mean to be a Christian? 
don't say, well, it means that I'm internally rooted in the love of God himself. They'll kind of look at you rather oddly if you say that. But here's what I mean. To be a follower of Jesus means that you are a gift from God the Father to God the Son. Now, I was trying to think of a way to explain this, of what it means to be a gift from God the Father to God the Son. And this metaphor isn't perfect, but hopefully it's helpful. But I thought about what it's like to, if, if you have a family with multiple kids, then you know what it's like to introduce uh, a younger sibling to the older sibling. And that's a really fun, exciting moment, right? You celebrate this. This is a tender moment in which a parent introduces a child to a, a bigger, an older child. Because there's so much joy in what it is to expand the family. It's like now you get to enjoy this relationship. Our family, we've been watching a few videos, uh, a few old uh, family videos, and we found this this video of of when Karis was being introduced to her older siblings. And Lena just takes her finger and just pokes it right in her eyeball. (laughs) But we still laugh. Like it was a cute moment. Like there's joy in this. Sometimes it hurts, right? But there's joy and love and excitement when it comes to expanding the family. You see, God the, fam- God the Father is welcoming us home alongside God the Son. You, friends, are a gift. You see, to walk with the shepherd Jesus Christ is to be held tightly in the presence of God. Now, our world definitely needs to hear this. They desperately need to hear that voice of the shepherd. Because in our society today, there are so many other voices out there. There are so many other lies that are being told. So this week, I, I, or Molly showed me uh, this article that I thought was really great. It came out last month. It's written by David Brooks. And he goes through five lies that our culture tells. And two of these I thought were particularly interesting as it relates to this passage. You see, what, what Brooks is saying is that we're in a moment in our, in our society right now, not just a political crisis, although one could certainly argue very, very easily that that's the case, but we're especially in a moment of cultural crisis. He says that there's so many lies that are being voiced right now about what it means to live a, a flourishing human life. And there's two of these that I want to point out, like I said, from this article, and, and then we'll conclude. The first lie is this. Life is an individual journey. Life is an individual journey. Now, this is something that we tell young people all the time, right? Especially as they leave the nest. Right now, bookstores are kind of stocking up on uh, Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go, which is kind of uh, propaganda for this lie, I think. You, know, you, you can still buy it. It's on our shelf. You know, it's fine. <laughs> but what this lie is saying is don't be attached to anything. Always stay on the move. Don't linger anywhere for very long. And definitely, if you're standing somewhere for, for a moment, don't ask if you have any responsibility to that location. This lie is telling us to stay busy. Stay busy building your personal story. Rack up experiences that look good on your Instagram account or on your resume, right? Because you are the sum of those experiences. We should be able to pick up your phone and look through your GPS history and be very impressed by the personal journey that you've been on. So the second lie is this. You have to make your own truth. You have to make your own truth. This is the privatization of value, of meaning. Brooks reminds us that it's not up to schools or churches or even families to teach a set of moral values to people. No, it's up to you. It's up to the individual. And you are alone on this. Or as that pop song says that 
that my kids have been singing lately is, I make no apologies. This is me. You know, what this is saying is, I make up my own truth. It's my truth that is supreme over others. Do you hear this lie? Do you hear what this lie is doing? It sets up the individual to be the judge of truth. It sets up the individual to be the arbiter of meaning. And that's a lot of pressure, right? Like, who can sustain all of that? Who can hold all of that? It's no wonder that anxiety levels are going through the roof these days. We're putting all of this pressure on young people. And ultimately, this is an impossible task. By telling people these two lies, that life is an individual journey, and that truth comes from within, we're setting people up for failure. We're telling them to go be alone and go find meaning for yourself. And what we're doing is we're setting people up for isolation, for guilt, and for rampant anxiety. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have lives of personal inquiry. I love questions. If you know me, I love questions. I love talking through doubt. I love exploration. And I think that these things are essential to an authentic faith. No, but what I'm saying is that the pursuit of truth, the pursuit of beauty, the, tr- the pursuit of goodness, these are things that are best done within a community of people who you love. These things are, are, are found when you journey with the Good Shepherd when you were under his care. And I hope that this can be a church where we do this. Because friends, we need the shepherd of the sheep. He is not a shepherd king who is rebuilding institutions of false power and old empires. No, Jesus is the shepherd who was also the lamb that was slain. He descended into our pain and he himself was broken in every way so that we might have a place in his family. Not a perfect place. We might poke each other's eyes every now and then, but a place that is family, where we can listen to his voice, where we can dialogue with him, where he walks with us and holds our hands tightly and doesn't let go. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.